0: Hello, you're listening to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation with me, Will De Freitas.
1: And me, Annabelle Bly.
0: Now, before we get going with this episode, we've got a little favour to ask of you. We'd love to hear your feedback on what you think about The Ant Hill so far. So we've put together a short survey. It shouldn't take you more than a few minutes of your time. You can click on the link in the episode description or go to theconversation.com and click on The Ant Hill. Thanks.
1: This episode is all about self-experimentation. It's something that scientists have done since, well, science began. And there have been some great characters along the way. One of them was Nicholas Sen, an American surgeon who tried to find out if cancer is contagious by injecting himself with bits of cancerous lymph node that he took from a patient. Brave.
0: And I'm also reading a book right now about a guy called Alexander von Humboldt, who's a, a great scientist, one of the sort of early naturalists who travelled around the world and he thought all animals contained electricity, all animal flesh, animal matter and he uh, used to cut himself open and electrocute his open wounds to see if electricity travelled through them or came from within him. But you might be forgiven for thinking this sort of self-experimentation was a thing of the past. Humboldt's experiments were in the 1790s, Sen's cancer trial on himself was in 1901. How... Would that get past the sort of ethical review board any kind of experimental trial must get through today? But it turns out that self-experimentation is alive and well among researchers today.
1: Yep. In 2005, in fact, two Australian scientists won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for their discovery that most stomach ulcers were caused by a bacteria. And they proved it after one of them ingested the bacteria and actually gave himself ulcers.
0: Yeah. Talk about commitment to the cause. Now, it's certainly not the convention in science, but we thought we'd find out a little more from academics who are getting up close and personal with their work.
1: To start us off, our health and medicine editor, Clint Wichels, delves into one field of research where self-experimentation even seems to be growing in popularity, if not respectability. And that's nutrition. He spoke to a professor who's not afraid to self-experiment.
2: It all started about uh, six years ago when I had a health scare myself. I was doing some ski touring at high altitude and had a funny turn and got double vision and I had a real scare for a, a few months and decided to look at my own life, change my diet, wanted to lose some weight, wanted to find out how to do things and at the same time I, was, I started writing a book on the subject, uh, The Diet Myth. That's Tim Spector. Professor of genetic epidemiology
3: at King's College London, Tim is the director of the British Gut Project and founder of the Map My
2: Gut Company. He's also an avid self-experimenter. In the course of my research, I got very confused by all the things that were going on, and so I said, "Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try a lot of them myself." Um, you know, what's it like, for example, to be vegan? Uh, and uh, that, that experiment uh, lasted six weeks—very painful six weeks of my life, but. At least I could say I knew, you know, a bit what it was like to be vegan, and uh, it it all breaks down as if you're traveling a lot in the US, um, and all you've got to eat is, uh, you know, um, artificial cheese pizzas. That was the start, really, of me as I got. More into food, and I was experimenting to um, see if I could improve my gut microbes. Uh, I'd already done my own genetic testing for my previous book, uh, which was about genes and epigenetics, and that was interesting to know about your ancestry and and gave you a limited idea of health risks. So I was interested in the gut microbes and diet, and so I wanted to go on rather extreme diets to see if I could change my gut microbes for the better, and. This is now possible because you can actually measure um, uh, what your gut microbes are doing genetically by sending off a a little poo sample uh, to a lab and and, uh, they will (coughs) analyse it for you and give you the results back a a month or two later. After his painful vegan diet, Tim was ready for a more appetising experiment. I suddenly craved cheese after that. And it made me realise how important cheese was a part of my life. And, of course, uh, cheese is a very good source of live microbes. It's a probiotic. Um, So I went on an intensive three-day French cheese diet, which was was sort of going against all the conventional ideas of, you know, um, how fat would be bad for you. Um, But I I researched it, and I found that I got the three cheeses that had variety in them um, that had the most... um, Microbes that were using unpasteurized milk, and this was um, a Brie de Mo, um, an Epoisse, which is extremely soft, smelly French cheese, and a Roquefort, which um, was uh, is that is the sort of French equivalent of the Stilton. Um, and that in those blue lines are all the fungi. So you've got the fungus and the microbes. So the three of them gave me a real rich mixture of, of smelly microbes that I'd be ingesting. And I, that's all I ate um, for uh, three days, uh, accompanied only with a bit of um, French red wine and an occasional apple just to help it all down. The first day was fantastic. I thought this is the best diet I've ever been on. Um, second not, day, not so sure. By day three, I'd really absolutely had enough. And, uh, you know, having Roquefort for breakfast in a big slab was just a bit too much. Um, and I, I monitored my microbes, had they changed a bit. In fact, uh, they, they only changed moderately uh, after all that effort.
3: A short-term diet of fine cheeses doesn't seem to be very risky. I wondered if Tim had ever put his health at serious risk with his self-experiments.
2: Strangely, the the one thing that uh, ended me up in trouble was uh, my olive oil diet, where I um, uh, decided to be like a a Cretan fisherman and have a half pint of olive oil for breakfast, uh, which is what I'd read in the books, although I'd never actually met anyone who saw saw it. And so I was in Spain at the time on my own. And uh, the first thing in the morning, um, you know, had my glass of olive oil and went out to get my hair cut. And... uh, basically I had a very major fainting episode and uh, collapsed in the hairdressers. My body just wasn't ready for that half pint of olive oil as, as a breakfast thing but luckily I, I, I survived that but decided that was one, one of my studies I was going to curtail and just keep my olive oil, you know, when I've got a nice bit of bread to soak it up and some red wine as well.
3: So is self-experimenting making a comeback?
2: I think it's making a comeback because um, people have got a bit disenchanted with perhaps the their modern medicine and what the average GP can offer, and uh, feel that technology is now advanced so much that, in a way, a lot of the health and other aspects uh, can nearly bypass the medical triage and actually go direct to the consumer. And it's and the web has obviously opened up huge ability of people to to get that information and connect with each other and order all kinds of tests on the internet uh, without the need of uh, a gatekeeper basically. With the startup company MapMyGut, Tim is trying to get
3: more people involved in self-experimenting. You send a poo sample to MapMyGut and a couple of months later you receive the results of your gut microbiome as well as
2: personalized advice. No two people are really the same so everyone's rather unique so What this means is that if you want to work out your real relationship to food and how to improve your gut microbes, you've probably got to do your own DIY experiments. Um, But if you do just a study of yourself, I think it's good to put it in context um, with another group. So the idea of 10 of us all taking the same diet is to show that we can get these results back in a month or so you get your your DNA microbe results back you can say who's improved has everyone improved out of the 10 or did only 8 out of 10 improve and that will give the result back to the individual but also say okay well on average even if you didn't do the experiment this would help other people to say well if you had an extra 18 grams of fiber um, and you did this to your diet this is what it that it would change is there ever an element of, uh, sort of scientific uh,
3: curiosity that compels you to self-experiment rather than say, waiting to you
2: know, design a study, run it, analyze, and then three years later you get the result? Well It's a bit of both. I mean, yeah I mean, my day job as a scientist, I do experiments that you, you get grants and, and three years later you might get a result. And there's a side of me that wants to know the answer much quicker, uh, both as a scientist and as an individual for myself. But it's not just about professional scientists. Tim would like to get the general public involved too. If we can get enough citizen scientists out there who, for example, um, join the American or British gut projects, which is a cheap way of getting your microbiome tested, that contributes to the the huge database. We've now got 3,000 Britons and 7,000 Americans mapped this way, um, but doesn't give much individual feedback about their results. But if everybody in those studies would do just a month or two of the same diet uh, and measure themselves again, we would have a, a result pretty quickly that everyone could relate to. And I think this is what we're, we're, we're moving towards. And, and the microbiome space seems to be where everyone wants to do it because everyone's interested in diet, everyone's interested in their personal foibles of what they like and what they dislike and growing problems of allergies, etc. And now we have the technology that we can measure it quite easily uh, before and after um, if we can assimilate the individual's result with a bigger group then i think we've got the perfect model that doesn't have to wait for some really slow grant or the government body or charity to do it people can just get together um, and say okay um, we'll all do this i'll get my own result and at the same time it'll contribute and and what, what do you see the feature of self-experimentation in the field of nutrition looking like Well, nutrition is in a mess and no one knows uh, what uh, advice uh, to take, Um, the government advice is currently completely conflicted and uh, no one really agrees whether it's right or wrong. So people are going to have to make their own minds up. And I think the way to get around that, because the lack of um, top-down advice, is people to get on and group together and do their own studies and work out if they're a person that is someone who benefits from a high-fat diet or a low-carb diet, or a high-carb, no-meat diet. And actually, but if they group together, all these people via the internet, then I think we could really make massive strides into working out what our best nutrition is for us as, as a population and as an individual. So um, I just think we need to get more golden examples of how to do it. And that's that would be you know one of, one of the things I, I'd, I'd love to be, you know, Um, leading the next few years
3: A note to any wannabe self-experimenters listening, do try this at home and if you're going to give it a go don't do it on your own try and link up with other groups and make it more scientific and safer you never know your gut could be part of a science breakthrough in the future
0: That was Clint Whitchells, our health and medicine editor, speaking to Tim Spector, Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London.
1: We switch now to a different way of self-experimenting. Next, our arts and culture editor, Josephine Lethbridge, speaks with a professor who decided to entirely immerse himself in the characters of David Bowie.
0: For a whole year, he lived life as the pop star and became everyone from Ziggy Stardust to Aladdin Sane or the Thin White Duke. He's a cultural historian who wanted to gain a better understanding of Bowie's mind and work.
4: One wintry Melbourne day in July 2015, film and cultural studies professor Will Brooker got dressed in his midnight blue suit and red wig. He sat in front of the hotel mirror to apply his turquoise eyeshadow and orange blusher. Then, having not slept in days and wired on coffee, he went to the opening of a David Bowie exhibition to quaff champagne and pose and pout with the punters. This was just one relatively normal day in the course of a year-long research project. Looking for a new way to add to an already significant body of work on Bowie, Will had decided to immerse himself in Bowie's cultural context and see if it gave him any new insight into the pop star. And so, over the course of a year, he spent a few months in each decade of Bowie's life as a star, starting in the 60s. He only listened to music, read books, watched films of the era he was in. He wore the clothes that Bowie wore at the time, and got a new Bowie haircut whenever he moves into a new period or persona. He even tried out Bowie's infamous 70s diet of red peppers and milk. I spoke to Will about his experience of being Bowie, and his somewhat unusual method of academic research. He explained that, although it might appear ostentatious to some, he didn't consider his method to be too outrageous.
5: It's not unusual, really, to go on pilgrimages to to the kind of places you're studying, or the places that are associated with an individual you're studying. It's probably not that unusual to try and immerse yourself in the culture that you're you're studying either. And if things help you, kind of almost talismanically, like um, having items of clothes or haircuts, you know. I think it's uh, it's harmless at worst and, and useful at best. I, I feel you can't be David Bowie, but what you can do is channel your sense of Bowie. And connect with and try and recreate and simulate some of his experiences and through that try to gain some understanding. And understanding, my aim was to gain an understanding that I wouldn't have got if I hadn't done it, and I think that, that was the achievement. You can't become another person, I think, but you can understand them better by trying to put yourself through some of the same experiences.
4: As Will explained to me, the parameters of his project quickly evolved. <laughs>
5: It started off more as a private, personal thing, and it became a public thing, and it grew and grew. Mm -hmm. It grew and grew, and as people expect you to be doing it and you become known as the person who's living as David Bowie, well, you've got to do it properly, you see, you've got to live up to it.
4: So, while he started off just wearing vintage clothes to get a feel for the period, the public response to seeing him in the street meant that it quickly became performative, in a way almost beyond his control.
5: It's like people see you as some sort of avatar of Bowie they know you're not bowie but they kind of want to pretend you are in a way you know like being a lookalike or a tribute act or something it's like you're kind of good enough as a substitute it's actually it's really you know uh, kind of enjoyable in a way and you have to live up to that you see and Mm -hmm. then if people come up to you saying can I have a photo and that happens all the time and obviously they don't think you're bowie but you're kind of they like the experience of the simulation of being with a, a Bowie in quotation marks and so mm-hmm. you have to live up to and you have to be a kind of Bowie because you can't just stand that you couldn't stand there all shy not not strike a pose or something you couldn't kind of you'd be letting people down if you didn't do the act
4: the idea of a professor spending a year living as David Bowie quickly caught the attention of the press will soon found himself in the spotlight emulating Bowie in more ways than he had anticipated the only option was to embrace it wholeheartedly Let's
6: that's why i agreed to everything because i thought it would be helpful
5: gaining an understanding what it was like to suddenly become more famous not as famous obviously but um you know to be catapulted into a figure where your phone is ringing all the time from, from journalists and you're going from one interview to another and You're much more of a visible person and people are writing about you without your knowledge and using your photographs without your knowledge and saying all sorts. You become a figure that you don't own anymore, a part of yourself, a kind of, um, you know, a persona that you've put out there is circulating without your control.
4: So he performed in tribute bands and went to interview after interview in full Bowie regalia. He constantly lived as a sort of David Bowie, Will Brooker hybrid. Sometimes the Bowie side took over.
5: I think it was like on a spectrum, really. And most of the time, it was some kind of hybrid. And sometimes in interviews, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to c- commit to this. I'm yeah. going to do an interview like Bowie. And, uh, you know, one of my – I say there is no Will Brooker anymore, which I think was kind of mm-hmm. hit the peak. Uh, people didn't really like that. Journalists, they, they found it, you know, they found it baffling and frustrating. David Bowie.
6: David Bowie. David Bowie. David Bowie. David Bowie. David Bowie. David Bowie. Professor Will Brooker. Will Brooker.
1: Will yeah. Brooker.
2: Will
6: Brooker. Professor Will Brooker.
2: There is no Will Brooker
4: anymore from me. Given the amount of press attention he was getting, I assumed that Bowie himself must have got wind of the project. I
5: kind of thought you must have known. I mean, people must have like someone that must have radars going out, you know, David, Mr. Bowie. Have you have you seen about this? Oh, dear, what, a, what a silly fellow! I don't know what he must have thought. I mean, obviously it crossed my mind what he must have thought. Um, you know, I had kind of little fantasies of him sitting there in his mansion. <laughs> What's going on now? What will people think of next? And I obviously thought, you know, I hope it amuses him rather than yeah. upsets him.
4: But of course, Will's approach to the project changed dramatically when about two thirds of the way through, Bowie died in January last year.
5: You know, there was a period where I really doubted how I could go on with it because, you know, it seemed kind of tasteless in a way. Um, fortunately i suppose i was in a period which was much more sober and somber already because he died when i was at the period of exactly the year 2000 and after that he became more of a kind of you know veteran curator type figure you know there was nothing nothing too outrageous he was he was much more reflective in his work i mean his his work is much more about age really and there was a long period of I suppose, semi-retirement or or retirement. So it was doable, you know, it was manageable, but it did take a lot of thought and it was the the strangest and actually, you know, obviously a a sad, very sad experience. Uh, I would say really, and a lot of fans I think would echo me on this, it felt like a genuine type of grief, you know, a kind of family grief in that it didn't hit me at all immediately and I just feel I had to just put it out of my head and put it in a box, the idea that he's dead, and carry on with what I was doing.
4: A few months later... Will said goodbye to his year as Bowie in style. He performed as Ziggy Stardust alongside tribute band The Thin White Duke at Kingston University, where Will is a professor and Bowie played in 1972. Will's year as Bowie resulted in a documentary and the book Forever Stardust, published on January 8th, what would have been Bowie's 70th birthday. Will came away from the project perhaps a little less despairing about his hero's death.
5: Bowie is something created by David Robert Jones, who's, you know... A normal guy, a shy guy, a very talented guy, and a very dedicated guy, and a very committed guy. But, you know, David Bowie is a character, not even a, a stage name rather than a legal name. David Jones kept his legal name up until his death. And so I think the death of David Jones doesn't have to mean the death of David Bowie. In a very real sense, David Bowie is a, is a character. And I think I think it would be wrong for anyone to say, I am David Bowie, and now I'm going to continue after Jones is dead. But I think David Bowie belongs to all of us in a way, and I don't think David Jones would mind all that much if... People who loved him and his work were keeping him alive, and so, um, you know, I, I think I do try and keep some of that spirit alive, for my own benefit, not not for Bowie's benefit. But I think we can learn a lot by being a bit more Bowie.
4: Skeptical? Perhaps it's time for you to get that red wig and orange blusher out. <laughs>
1: That was The Conversation's arts and culture editor, Josephine Lethbridge.
0: Hang on. Do we know if he stayed sober? Because a few of those iterations of Bowie were basically drug addicts, and I don't know what he was on when he came up with some of those outfits.
1: Uh, Well, I'd like to think that, like all good academics, he adhered to the highest ethical research standards. But if that's what you want to talk about, Will, there are plenty of scientists who have taken mind-altering substances to experiment on their own brains.
0: As part of their day job? and called it research.
1: Yeah, I think so. Well, next up to tell us more is our colleague Miriam Frankel, who's been looking into self-experimentation in the world of psychology and neuroscience.
7: I was forced to interrupt my work in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home, being affected by a remarkable restlessness combined with a slight dizziness. At home, I lay down and sank into a not-unpleasant, intoxicated-like condition, characterized by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state, with eyes closed, I found the daylight to be unpleasantly glaring. I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. These are the words of Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman, describing what happened in 1943 when he discovered the psychedelic effects of LSD while investigating its medicinal properties in the lab. He decided to take a dose of the compound after having accidentally absorbed a tiny amount a few days earlier. Self-experimentation, when it comes to our inner experiences, has probably existed as long as human curiosity has. Today, psychologists and neuroscientists still do it for a number of different reasons. I spoke to Peter Kinderman, a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Liverpool, who has experimented on himself a number of times. Most notably, he decided to take the antipsychotic medication chlorpromazine, used to treat conditions such as schizophrenia, by reducing the brain's sensitivity to the chemical dopamine. For him, it was an empathy experiment. It was something he wanted to do, to better understand what his patients and other people that he cared about were going through when taking the drug. Peter had also long been sceptical about the benefits of taking the medication, believing it was overprescribed. So he decided to take a very small dose of the drug for a total of three days, blogging about the experience.
8: Well, I planned it very carefully, because I planned it at a time when my wife wouldn't be around, because she would have forbidden me from doing it. I planned it at a time when I wasn't likely to drive because I was worried about the sedating effects of antipsychotic medication and it so happened that I had a period of uh, five or six days when I was in Paris at a conference and I thought it would be safe for me to do it. I'd be on my own, I could you know be isolated from those demands of being in a family and I thought I could also see what it was like to be in a in a city, uh, I thought I would see what it was like to go to the Louvre while on antipsychotics and what what the experience was like. So I I arrived in Paris and started taking a therapeutic dose of chlorpromazine and then uh, went through three days and then stopped taking it. It wasn't dreadful. I functioned perfectly okay. Uh, I don't think I was suffering. I wasn't turned into a walking zombie. The physical effects on my legs were quite unpleasant, tolerable for three days. It's very difficult to know how it would be possible to tolerate those physical side effects for a long period of time. So I went to quite a posh restaurant and ended up taking my shoes and socks off underneath the table. The irritation in my legs and feet was quite difficult to tolerate. I slept beautifully and it was very, very difficult to stay awake. So I, I was in Paris during the European Cup finals and there was a very excited Game between England and Germany, I think I recall, which like everybody was watching, and I did switch it on on the hotel TV and then probably fell asleep. We would have to do an experiment to find out whether the Louvre is more emotionally engaging when off or on antipsychotics. Yeah, I can't tell from one, I mean, I have been there more than once, but I can't tell whether. Because I was taking antipsychotics, I was unmoved by the artwork. I might just be a philistine. You know, I tend on the whole to go, yeah, it's a painting, and do that anyway. So would I have been more emotionally moved had I been free from the antipsychotics? Were the antipsychotics dulling my experience of the art? I'm not sure that I can say. I can say that I sort of drifted around the three days. I, I was actually more likely to talk to strangers during those three days than is normal for me. But then I can't tell because I knew I was taking the stuff Mm. so maybe I was behaving differently. I mean I got friendly with this American family and I'm usually much too nervous to do such things.
7: But actually it was when Peter stopped taking the drug that things got really interesting.
8: The day after I stopped taking it I remember distinctly being utterly convinced that people were walking through my hotel room. Now what is clear was that it was people walking in the corridor of the hotel and I was sort of half asleep, half dreaming, whatever but the experience I had was that the reality of their presence was was there acutely for me it turned on the light and of course there was nobody there and it wasn't that I was deluded or hallucinating it, it was that I had heard people in the corridor but my Brain had interpreted it as them being in my hotel room, and the experience was a very real experience, and that made me think a little bit. I think that gave me some insight into in that case what it, it would be technically called a sort of rebound psychosis, but I think that gave me some experience of first of all some of the power of the drugs in the, what was happening presumably in my biochemistry was that the drugs had suppressed dopamine levels and then when i'd stopped taking the drugs there was a bit of a research of dopamine levels and therefore the perception of people being slightly socially threatening experience of people uh, walking through the corridor of the hotel was that much more vivid that much more real that much more personal that much more intense that much more close to me as an experience it's probably a little bit like i've never taken street drugs but it's probably a little bit like what a minute dose of lsd might have been like
7: Peter was never aiming to publish the experiment in a scientific journal, stressing he didn't have a specific hypothesis. He was, after all, just one person, and he did not suffer from psychosis. But this wasn't the only time he dabbled in self-experimentation, which he believes may be rather common in his field.
8: Well, because in psychology we use a lot of questionnaires and other ways of tapping into human experience Self-experimentation at the most basic level happens all the time when we're piloting and developing questionnaires and measures in order to see whether the machinery, if you like, works. We'll take questionnaires or we'll take tests or we'll take uh, equipment and we'll try it out ourselves or try it out with our friends and family just to make sure that the thing works properly. Quite often, the experimenters, researchers... um, experiment on themselves in that they perform the tests, not only in order to find out what's going on, in order to test their own reactions to things, but sometimes they are participants in their own studies. That seems to happen a lot more in some of the sort of more neuroscience end of psychology, where people who have neurological tests, brain scans, EEG tests and so forth, it's not unknown for technicians or the investigators themselves to be uh, participants in the study sometimes acknowledged in the papers my guess would be occasionally the participants have been the experimenters themselves and I'm not certain that's always acknowledged I'm not sure it matters a great deal if what you're looking at is the internal synaptic functioning of the brain th- those things tend to be much less amenable to experimenter bias it's very difficult for me as a, as a human being to actively decide where the oxygenated blood will flow in my brain in order to confirm the hypothesis that I have. Yeah, If I'm looking at moving images on a screen while my uh, brain is being examined with uh, an fMRI machine, there's not an awful lot I can do because I know the hypothesis to influence the data. So I think people feel it's a little bit more robust. I have been party to um, developing methodologies. I've got a, a research paper involving um, functional magnetic resonance imaging. as we were setting up that experiment. Um, I certainly had my brain Im- imaged uh, several times. I, I think it's relatively common.
7: But is this really ethical and how is it regulated? To find out, I spoke to Circa E. Kinecti from Kiel University.
9: I don't think it's unethical in and of itself to to self experiment, right? It really, really depends on the context of the research, um, the research protocol, the the outcome, the way that the research is interpreted, and so on. There are very limited regulations around self experimentation. For the most part, uh, you're talking about just self regulation. And a lot of the professional bodies related to biomedical research don't actually explicitly address self-experimentation. Um, I know in the United States, different institutions uh, regulate it through the the usual internal review process. So it's treated like any other research. There has to be um, ethics review, there has to be a consent form, all that kind of thing. And it's quite interesting that it's indirectly regulated at the moment. So, um, increasingly, uh, scientific journals are requiring ethics review uh, of all. Uh, research before they'll publish it. So um, you'd have to demonstrate that your paper uh, involved research that was subjected to ethics review by some panel somewhere. But certainly there's nothing to stop someone from doing it if they didn't want to publish in a a scientific journal.
7: So it all seems to come down to whether a researcher chooses to disclose self-experimentation. And what if they did? Would an ethics
9: panel let them participate in their own brain scanning study? Well, I think a lot of research ethics committees would probably advise against it. Um, I think in general, the scientific community now would be kind of reluctant to approve it unless there was a good reason. And there could be a good reason. So it might be that there are sufficient kind of safeguards in place, meaning that the researcher will never know which brain is their own brain. Um, And so interpreting one brain scan among a variety of other brain scans (laughs) won't um, affect the validity, the scientific validity of the research. Um, But you'd have to demonstrate, I think, why you have to be a participant in your own research. But what about researchers who just
7: want to widen their horizons? People who like Peter just want to understand the world better. Surely there is nothing wrong with that.
9: Certainly it's it's an interesting kind of way of approaching your research to see what it's like to be in the shoes of people who are generally the subjects of your research. Um, I think it's a it's a, a noble endeavor. So long as researchers um, are doing this under appropriate kind of medical supervision, I don't see that there's any ethical problem with it. I think it's um, you know, important to point out that if you're just taking a particular drug or a treatment to see what it's like to be on those treatments, you're not necessarily doing research. You're um, doing the kind of self-experimentation that humans always engage in, right? You're trying things out to see what it's like. And all of us are entitled to do that
0: that was the conversation science editor miriam frankel
1: well that's it for this episode of the anthill lawn self-experimentation While there's certainly some elements of this episode that we'd recommend you try at home, the brain stuff might be best left to the experts.
0: We'll be back next month when we'll be looking at the future and asking why what counts as futuristic can seem so dated.
1: A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us and to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. If you've enjoyed listening, please do review us on whichever platform you get your podcasts. And also give us your feedback in the survey you'll find by clicking the link in the description notes of this episode.
0: The Ant Hill is brought to you by The Conversation UK. We're a news analysis website funded by UK universities and research bodies. Check us out at theconversation.com or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye.